0: Hello, and welcome to the Hustle & Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennetts, and I'm an urban and regional planner, and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode, I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia, We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 12 for this year. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Barbara Norman. She's the... Foundation Chair of the Urban and Regional Planning and a Director of the Canberra Urban and Regional Futures at the University of Canberra. Professor Norbin is Chair of the ACT Climate Change Council and a Visiting Fellow at the Australian National University. Barbara is Life Fellow and Past National President of the Planning Institute of Australia and Life Honorary Member of the Royal Town Planning Institute in the UK. Barbara holds a Bachelor of Town and Regional Planning. Masters of Environmental Law and a PhD in Sustainable Coastal Planning. She also has substantial professional background, having worked at all levels of government and also ran her own practice. Her current research and teaching interests include sustainable cities and regions, coastal planning, climate change adaptation and urban governance. Barbara was a contributing author to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 5 Working Group 2 report on impacts in 2013. Professor Norman advises the public and private sectors here in Australia and has strong international links within Asia, Europe and United States. Barbara was an- awarded a Australian Centenary Medal for her contribution to the community through urban and regional planning. Professor Norman is a true legend of planning and I'm just absolutely honoured to be chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. How are you today? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you,
1: Nicole. And um, I'm a little envious of where you are because in Canberra it was minus three degrees this morning and weather uh, and felt like minus seven. So uh, it's pretty fresh here, but at least the sun is shining. I just wanted to say that um I finished as chair of the ACT Climate Change Council. You, by legislation, you just can do two terms, and my terms have concluded. But uh, anyway, just as an update, thank you.
0: Oh, thank you for updating that bio. But what an impressive bio you have, and uh, and you know you have you've done everything in planning. I think you you know as as the bio says, you've worked at all levels of government, and you've really got that broad perspective, uh, and and you know you've you've sort of contributed to some significant. Uh, pieces of work and and changes in our profession. So, you know, I, I'm in awe of you, and and I've said to you when we were just chatting earlier that I've followed you on Twitter for some time, and I really love all of the the perspectives and and expertise that you put out there. Um, and you've you know you've had such a diverse career across academia and research now, um, and those leadership roles in those peak bodies, um, such as the national president of the Planning Institute of Australia. So, I'd love to just um pick your brain a bit today about, sure. about planning, about your career um, and just just to sort of, um, you know, for people to understand, you know, your perspectives and, and where you've been and come from, what your top career highlights are. So how would you describe those kind of top moments in your career and why are they the highlights? Well, I've occurred for different reasons
1: at different times, Um Maybe I'll go back a little bit in time. One of the one of the most formative uh, projects I worked on was um, transforming the city of Melbourne from a commercial retail centre to a much more livable centre with uh, uh, housing, residential development, mixed use, and all the activities you see you see today. Uh, I was a young planner. I worked for the state government department, um, and then in premier and cabinet at quite a young uh, professional age in my twenties. And uh, we're on something called the Central Area Task Force. It's very hard for people to understand that back then um, I could literally walk to each residential place, not even development place in the center of the city, in the CBD. there was no, virtually no residential living in the centre of Melbourne, and that's very hard for people to understand today. Um, I was the first project officer for the South Bank development, which is just huge now. Nothing existed then, just old railway lines, and, and no one even knew who owned the land. So that was a very formative um, uh, uh, project and um, transformational one, and that really inspired me to... Uh, continuing planning uh, for the rest of my career, really. Um, So that was one. Uh, I think uh, another, I I won't go through it all, but the second one that I really learnt a great deal from was uh, when I moved to Canberra, I I married, I was gonna say someone, I married my then husband um, uh, at the time, uh, brought me to Canberra from Melbourne and I took up a job in Queanbeyan in uh, New South Wales. And I was the senior planner for the Southeast region of New South Wales from uh, Kosciuszko to the coast. And so that was my, really my um, experience. I'd had a little bit before, but solid experience in uh, regional planning, in uh, non-metropolitan planning, in working with uh, rural councils, um, dealing with issues around national parks and coastal coastal edges and everything in between. And. Um, uh, that was a fantastic opportunity and um, I really loved it until I had a young baby and it was getting kind of challenging to be going to Kosciuszko and breastfeeding at the same time. So it was. So I then moved to a role uh, more easily done at that time um, to to bring all those family and work responsibilities together at the university at this ANU actually. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then a third one I'll just mention is um, which – Possibly people don't know so much about my background. I was housing commissioner in the ACT. So I had a really strong, and I also worked on the national housing strategy at the time, and, uh, uh, quite a strong uh, period in my career working on housing issues. And um, obviously as a commissioner with uh, public housing and all the responsibilities there, and then on national housing policy at the time under the um, I guess it would have been at Keating government during the, during the uh, mid-90s, late 90s. Uh, and so I just mentioned those three, so urban, non, non-urban, and housing, and, of course, all my work in climate change today.
0: Um, yeah. It's important. Yeah, absolutely. And just shows the diversity of what a planner does, doesn't it? For sure, for sure. Um, I think... Uh,
1: I think planning is really quite unique in the sense that it has a really strong capacity to connect the dots, to bring different threads together, presented in a spatial way, which is not just beneficial for planning, but beneficial for the community to gain a deeper understanding of what's happening. And um, also, unusually, it has a temporal dimension. We plan for the future. Um, and there aren't many professions so specifically actively involved in that. Um, So, yeah, I think planning, um, I think planning is about to go through a renaissance. I think the value of planning, and I'm seeing this in all the climate change discussions, um, the value of planning is being uh, restored, if you like. It went through a bit of a difficult time, um, cut the red tape and fast track everything and it got a bit of a negative reputation for a while, but um, even the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report on adaptation, you can find this on the IPCC website, um, specifically talks about climate resilient planning and development and the value of planning. And so I see it being championed from different quarters uh, globally. And I suspect we might see... Uh, more of a conversation around this with the election of the new government as well.
0: Yeah, gotcha. absolutely. I think that goes to my next question, Barbara, around what motivates and drives you as a planner today? Definitely what motive, well, what's
1: always motivated me, but uh, even more so today, is um, it's an old-fashioned uh, concept of um, common good, community good. And it's one of those... Um, it can be a powerful instrument in uh, making very positive changes to a community. Uh, and certainly uh, where you're based um, in southeast Queensland, you would know that well. Um, and when we work together, uh, especially when councils work together um, in a more regional sense, uh, when we cooperate and collaborate, uh, we can actually do fantastic things. Uh, So just coming back to my city, um, putting an urban planner as chair of the Climate Change Council, um, I think was a smart move by the government in connecting those threads. And we committed in 2011 to be 100% renewable electricity by 2020, and we achieved that. And I think that um, skills of a planner, quite often planners end up chairing things, you know chairing boards, chairing, or take up senior executive roles because they have this ability to to bring things together. Um, and um, I think that uh, yes, again, what inspires me is we can leave it a
0: better place. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now shifting to climate change. I'm, I'm keen to understand, and, and I've asked this question of a few guests, and you're the first one I've asked since the, the change of government. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see whether this is a, a slight shift in, in the response here. But I'm, I'm interested in the key barriers to, for Australia in adapting to climate change and sort of what they are and, and, you know, how we might sort of look to address those barriers.
1: Well, certainly the change of government um, has removed quite a few of those barriers, um, and uh, in that, um, that, just yesterday, they announced a mega department for climate change, bringing all these dimensions together. Um, although planning would still be under the other department of um, infrastructure. Can't remember its long name yet. Transport, regional development, and local government. I think I got it. Uh, and do I uh, know where cities sit? Is that over there? Because well, cities would sit in there. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I guess that brings the first point that those two mega departments will need to work together um, uh, to be um, uh, effective in um, for example, um, in embedding climate change considerations into regional development programs and plans uh, would be very important. Embedding climate change criteria into any national infrastructure decisions is very important. Um, Encouraging, um, probably more more than just encouraging, um, states and territories to uh, amend their planning legislations to embed climate change specifically in the law, um, which I'm strongly arguing for, have been for a while, and will continue to. Um, So, um, in fact, in my I've just submitted a book for publication for COP26, uh, COP27, sorry, in November <laughs> this year. Uh, and in Egypt. In one. Egypt, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's um, called Urban Planning for Climate Change, so pretty well Very on Very apt. <laughs> yeah, But in doing that, I have looked at um, the planning acts around the world and uh, Australia has some catching up to do, um, and I'm sure we can, but it will require, I'd like to see the, planning ministers brought together with um, a new federal um, minister to tease through the, some of these things. The UK Town and Country Planning Act, climate change is absolutely front and centre of the legislation now. American Planning Association, very strong on action on climate change. Australian Planning Institute now has a strong policy on um, climate change, which is good. So coming back to a question, what needs to happen? So The first thing that we need to do, which uh, we haven't done properly yet, is to map the risks, uh, the climate risks and overlay that where existing development is and uh, where, importantly, where future growth corridors are planned. So we can identify where there might be uh, areas at risk and vulnerabilities. Then we need to be um, having a program funded by state governments and supported by higher levels of government, nationally I would argue as well, for uh, working um, to establish processes um, to work with vulnerable communities, to uh, work out climate resilient plans for those those particular areas as a priority. Um, And then thirdly, we need to make sure that we're not adding to the legacy that we already have by continuing to build on flood-prone land or areas of extreme fire risk or coastal inundation. So there's some really practical steps that need to happen. And the fourth one I would add is um, we need to be upskilling um, land use planners and built environment professionals generally in um, at least understanding the basics of climate change. So they have more confidence in advising um, decision makers, mayors, local councils on these issues. So part of more formally part of the curriculum.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it goes into that point of of proactive planning rather than reacting when you know climate impacts occur you know and we we were affected in southeast Queensland um, by the recent floods you know two sets of flooding events you know these one in 100 year type events that people talk about you know that we know are not one in 100 years but it's that whole kind of you know, these disasters that happen and everyone kind of gains a momentum around we need to do something different. And then, you know, now we've got sunny days again. And I, I just hope that that momentum lasts and that people see that there needs to be a change in the way that we we plan our community so that they are more resilient when these events do occur in the future. We actually know what to do. We, we know that... Uh, you know, whether it's mitigation
1: uh, with carbon neutral development or adaptation with um, urban forestry and, uh, and um, water-sensitive urban design and stepping back from the coast. Um, uh, the Gold Coast, of course, is, um, um, and I've said that publicly for a long time, uh, an area at risk. Uh, simply just the geography and the coasts and potential for flooding. Um, so uh, we know what to do. We just need to... Um, We need to uh, put it into action and be proactive. And I do think it's an opportunity as with all challenges for planning to step forward and to show leadership and advocate strongly about how we can make a very positive contribution um, to um, uh, uh, communities at risk. But I will also add that we're past the point of guidelines and advisory notes, doesn't work. We've done that for the last 10 years. It's not changing, so or too slowly. So I actually am uh, strongly in support of regulation. When people say industry will react, oh, that's a myth, really. Industry looks for certainty. They want to know what the rules are, they want to know what the certainty is, and then they will adjust accordingly and invest in accordingly. Just to finish on that note, I was speaking to someone from the insurance industry, um, actually only this morning, and, she was saying that um, increasingly they hear that the insurance sector will sort it out. They won't insure, us, insure areas. Well, the insurance industry aren't happy with this because they're saying that it's too late then. Mm. So that's after the event. Yep. What we need to be is investing in planning in the future. And I guess that was a really um, positive um, note back to the planning profession that the insurance industry is looking to planning to to take a forward lead and be proactive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you say that around sick of guidelines and, and uh, you know, fact sheets. I, I completely agree. And I was listening to the World Economic Forum um and the mayor of Miami had some interesting things and he was talking about carrot and sticks, you know, and, and, it, you know, the simple kind of what's the carrot, you know, how are you going to kind of encourage people to do better? What are you going to sort of give them to, you know, to do something, but you need the stick, you know, right. Cause there's going to be some people that might follow the carrot, but you still need the regulation to actually make sure that people do make the changes. And and he was talking about the vulnerabilities of, of the city of Miami in the U S the city of miami is a very interesting case study they uh they're
1: spending millions on uh just elevating the the road next to the to the beach they're at risk knowing that that's not going to solve the problem but the real estate is so expensive there that they that's what they're going to do and knowing it might just buy them 15 20 years um but it' uh, looks pretty pretty
0: serious down the track for Miami. I was going to ask you, Barbara, what are the most innovative solutions you've seen in your work to adapting to climate change? you know we talk about or we hear about you know technology and some of these other kind of you know opportunities for adapting to climate change. How can we see the opportunities that that exist? Well, there's some excellent work happening around the world.
1: So, um, in terms of um, uh, managing floods and flood risk, um, Copenhagen has done some brilliant work there. It's a, called a cloud burst It's Won international awards, um, and that's about um, really it's what we describe as water sensitive urban design, but or almost water sensitive urban design on steroids. It's uh, so they they look at retaining, recycling, and absorbing shock downfalls. Um, through their drainage system and, but also recycling all of that back into a green open space and wetlands. Um, so um, that's just one example. Um, the other, I guess, um, significant uh, ones in the transport area, light rail, rapid rail, is a smart infrastructure, uh, electric cars, electrification of the whole transport system, if you like, um, is um, an exciting future. Uh, In terms of commercial buildings and housing, carbon-neutral developments clearly is the goal. Um, When I say that, though, I will say that one thing I think we're really weak on still is um, evaluation and monitoring of outcomes. So, Mm. certainly I know of examples um, where, even in my own town, where I know that um, concessions, like carrots, I guess, financial concessions have been given for Five-star developments, but no one's really gone back. So they've taken those, um, the developers, but no one's actually gone back to check whether that's been implemented. Yeah. Then or over time. Often it's the uh, budget item that's got the least money or even deleted when it comes to constraints, but it's something we have to invest in in the future because if we're going to be looking at um, outcomes like carbon neutral development, we need to have really clear criteria and we need to have performance Um, evaluation monitoring with that. So look, there's great examples around the world um, uh, in terms of, I have to say, in terms of coastal planning, Australia is not bad. You know, at least 96% of our coast is in public ownership, uh, which puts us way ahead of many countries. And uh, we have really amazing system of national parks and and areas that flank our coast. Um, We need to be focusing on our higher density areas we also need to be focusing on um, those areas that are vulnerable and, and at risk and equity considerations come in here where it might be a low-lying caravan park, it might be uh, some of our Indigenous communities, it might be uh, areas that that are not Miami or North Sydney beaches that are wealthy areas that have the capacity to move and adapt or negotiate with government. But I think as planners, we should be
0: very mindful of those areas that need actually need our help. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the the carbon neutral development. Have you had much experience or or seen many carbon positive developments where they actually have a positive impact on the carbon footprint? Uh, Not in Australia, I don't think, but there probably is. Certainly
1: we've got carbon neutral developments in Canberra that have been built and under budget and working very well. Um, so uh, example at the Australian National University is their environment um, area, the Fenner School building. That's exactly that. Um, so there are examples. Carbon positive? No, I'd like to. And I know that uh, I think that an ambition of the Games is to be carbon positive. So I think that's that's your role, uh, Nicole. <laughs> I think uh, up in your part of the world to, to lead the way and show us how it can be done. But if, if you look at... Um, I mean New York is just leading, New York City is leading in this space um, and supported by their um, New York City panel on climate change um, has great examples. Um, I interviewed um, the co-chair of the New York panel City panel on climate change uh, Joel Towers for my forthcoming book and he made a really good point that, I, that resonates when I repeat it to people that um, they estimate 90% of the development in the city of New York right now will still be there in 2050. So in that sense, we're already in 2050. This is why people often say are 2050, whatever. This is why we actually have to, this is why now matters. Uh, I think that um, uh, keeping in touch with organisations like that will um, help you um, innovate and find some carbon-positive Development examples. It's a good, yeah, good question, Nicole. One I, I will have a look at more closely myself.
0: Yeah, cool. And and look, that's what you've just said there around ninety percent of the built environment being around in twenty fifty. It, it was echoed at that World Economic Forum, and we were sort of when I was listening to that, it sort of occurred to me that. It's about the reuse and and adaptability and and what we can do to that existing built environment to make it sustainable, to make it resilient and and how can we kind of augment the existing environment to 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 achieve our goals rather than think about what new builds could do because they're going to be in the minority. Exactly, exactly. that's and and when we think of cities, um we often
1: focus on urban French development, but in fact the the suburbia is where most most people live. Uh, And so it comes back to my point about training, though. Um, The industry needs to be equipped to have the skills to be able to do the adaptive reuse. The planners need to have the skills to be able to assess and support adaptive reuse projects. So there is a lot of upskilling to be done. Uh, And uh, in that sense, the planning institutes and the other built environment institutes, Institute of Architects, Landscape Architects, engineers Australia um, have a really important role now as well to play in making sure that uh, the professions are able to give the advice that uh, the communities need uh, to be able to make these changes
0: yeah awesome look I have one last question for you and I know you said that the Brisbane Olympics is is the role of uh, of my neck of the woods but I'm keen to understand, and, and the, the sort of theme of this overall podcast is, is you know, the the opportunities and challenges leading up to, to the Olympics in 2032. So it's only 10 years away. And what would your advice be to the planners and the people involved in Brisbane around maximising the benefits of these Games? Is there sort of anything that comes to mind that, or you think, you know, anything you can share from your perspective? Well, I think that... Um,
1: well, one, it's a fantastic opportunity. Um, but I would be looking at two strings demonstration examples of excellence and and to push the push the boundaries like um, take it if you think that's excellent, push yourselves even harder and and really explore the boundaries. but also it's more than flagship pro- projects it's It's also about process and i keep talking about process now and it's one thing that i've i've learned myself through the process of writing this recent book that it is more than flagship projects it's much more than that it's it's about uh cultural change it's about processes that embed climate change action through everyday decision making in everything that we do and so i think that's important as well that you Show not only flagship projects but also um, uh, be an exemplar in just like we have with air quality, and just like we have with um, uh, heritage, all sorts of issues we've dealt with. Climate change action has become the norm. It's it's just a standard thing that we do in Brisbane, and uh, we always look for and in and keeping up to date with the latest science. Um, uh, so. For example, City of New York again um, uh, passed a bylaw. It is mandatory to include the latest science from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in the City of New York plan management. Right? But it's not again. It's not a, an optional extra discretionary. It's it's the law. And um, so I think City of Brisbane, the Olympic Games more broadly, uh, for for Queensland um uh it's a wonderful opportunity to uh showcase excellence about
0: projects but also how how to get it done. That's awesome. Look, that's so great. Thank you so much, Barbara, for sharing all of your your knowledge and your expertise and you know and just uh being a a breath of fresh air and an inspiration to many of us in the industry who have who have uh, watched uh, your your many kind of publications and, and positions? So I'm looking forward to this book. When will it be released? It's planned to be launched at um, COP27. Uh, so, um,
1: but I don't know. They have I think I've got a feeling they might be getting it out a little earlier. Uh, awesome. So um, we'll see what happens. But definitely for COP27. And-, and you'll be heading to Egypt. That's the plan. I do attend COP uh, meetings usually as part of the ANU delegation and uh, I plan to do that this year subject to geopolitics, COVID,
0: everything else. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, that's awesome. I, I looked forward to seeing everything that comes from COP27 because I think just in the last 12 months, the, the change in attitudes worldwide, but here in Australia as well, have been huge. So I really hope that that starts translating into some real action.
1: I'm very confident, Will. And just to finish, um, the Glasgow, I encourage people, your listeners, to look at the, the Glasgow Communicator came, I think it was called the Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, you'll find it on the web. Outcome of uh, COP26, for the first time, very clearly talked about um, urban planning and have asked all the nation states to report back on what they're doing about that um, and uh, at
0: COP27. So planning, again, is coming to the fore very strongly. Awesome. I might link that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. It's been much appreciated. Great pleasure. Thank you, Nicole, for the opportunity not a problem and thank you for tuning into the hustle and bustle podcast this week if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a rating and a review you can follow the show on linkedin and instagram too that's all from this episode thanks again for listening i'll catch you next time bye for now